So at the end of uh, Esther chapter 8, they got the decree uh, on paper to counter Haman's evil decree. Take a look. Uh, this is 8.15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And uh, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And remember, and I have to admit to you, I stole this from Alistair Begg, but that's when we got into Cool in the Gang. Remember that? <laughs> Celebrate good times. Come on. Okay, so we did a little bit of that, and some of you thought, Pastor Michael has lost it, but some of you already concluded that he did. So, so Mordecai's in these flowing royal robes. God has turned uh, beauty for ashes. I want you to turn to Psalm 30, because this is really appropriate here. Psalm 30. It's going to just be a little bit to your right. Psalm chapter 30. This is verse 4. Speaking of turnarounds, it says, Sing praises to the Lord. Psalm 30, verse 4, You, his godly ones, give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Psalm 30, verse 6. Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. That my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Turn back to the book of Esther. Chapter 8 ended with that shout of joy, that time of rejoicing. Uh, Mordecai in the royal robes, the city of Susa rejoicing, the Jewish people saying, hey, we got a counter edict now. We're, we're good, but that was only on paper. Have you ever had something on paper, but it didn't quite work out in reality? I think we all could admit that, you know, something happened, maybe a contract was signed many years ago. I remember I was in the printing world, and we made this uh, deal of all deals. It was a $5 million deal for me annually. And I went home, and Brenda and I were doing a little cool in the gang. Celebrate. Well, I'll tell you what. Within the next couple of months, the whole thing fell apart because our company wasn't able to produce what we had put on paper. In reality, we couldn't work it out. And I went from, yeah, 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 to, uh-oh. <laughs> Sometimes life is that way. We get something on paper, it looks good, but then in reality, it doesn't work out. Well, the end of chapter 8 is a celebration, but the war has not happened. There is a counter-edict. There's a counter-decree. Uh, remember, the laws of the Medes and Persians can't be overturned, so they had to assign something else and say the Jews can defend themselves against their enemies. That's chapter 8, verse 11. But the day was still coming. The day was still hanging over them. And I will tell you this, that there's been a lot written about Esther chapter 9, and some of the moral choices that were made here, even by Esther herself, as you'll see in a moment. But I want to pause for a second and put this question before you. It is easy to sit in an ivory tower or a classroom and decide and make your moral observations about a situation in history until you are under that situation. I want you to take a moment, and this is how the Jews would like to read these ancient stories, and put yourself in the story for a second. What if you lived in ancient Persia and a date was set for your extermination, not only you, but your family? It was written in the king's signet ring. The day was set. It was marked on the calendar. You knew there was anti-Semitism in Persia. And now you have to deal with what you're going to do for you and your family and community because there's been a date set for your annihilation. You, women and children, everybody. It's one thing to make moral you know, statements about the right and wrongness of something until you're walking in someone's sandals, right? And so we have to be a little bit careful. There are things that are clear, and then there are other things that are 
harder to deal with. Now we're in Esther chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command, Esther 9, 1, and edict were about to be executed. So this is the day. On the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary. ESV says the reverse occurred. NIV says the tables were turned. So that the Jews themselves gained the mastery, NIV got the upper hand over those who hated them. Now the fateful day had come for the decree to be executed. And by the way, uh, from the time that Haman put the date on the calendar, it was 11 months until that day would come. And what Haman did was he cast lots to determine the day. And earlier we studied that that's where the idea of poor comes from. The first part of Purim or Purim, or we might say Purim. That's the holiday in the spring that the Jews celebrate. And it's coming up two Wednesday nights from tonight. And as the Lord would have it, I remember I told you, you know, I was looking at the calendar and trying to figure out stuff. Well, we're only going to go to verse 19 tonight, and then we're going to finish chapter 9, and then we're going to have a little Purim night as a congregation in a couple of weeks. And some of the ladies in here are going to make the Purim cookies. And you know what the Purim cookies are? They're a little triangle cookie with jelly in the middle. They have these in Israel every year. And they're supposed to represent either Haman's ear or his pocket. I don't know why. I have an idea about the ear because of the way he died. But we're going to have out there normally oatmeal, raisin, chocolate chip. We're having, we're having Haman's ear in two weeks. <laughs> Bring a friend. And when you invite him, just say, hey, man, we're going to have some interesting snacks in two weeks. Come on by to live in truth. Anyway, now the day had arrived. It, it would, the text says that they cast lots for days, even months, because Haman was looking for what he might call the perfect day to execute this evil plan. Uh, in the ancient world, they had the concept of a lucky day. So what's the perfect day that we could kill all the Jewish people? They were looking for the perfect day to mark on the calendar. And there are people who do this today in other countries and other religions. You know, that they're worried about this one day, the perfect day to do this. Is there a perfect day to get married? No. <laughs> That's the answer? No. There's no perfect day. Now, you can pick a day on the calendar. Shane and Natalie picked a day on the calendar. And it was a July. And uh, it was 118 degrees that day. And uh, the power went out in my home where we were supposed to have the reception. And, uh, but the good news was that we had a pool. And it was 118 degrees. So anyway, people, good people got generators there and it worked. And the Lord was gracious. But this is what happened. The day had arrived and this is our uh, springtime, the month of Adar and the day had come. Can you imagine being a Jewish people, a Jewish person, and finally that day has dawned? You know that there's another edict where you can defend yourself, but you still know that there's a bunch of people who hate you, and you have to defend your family, your home. It would be a very scary time. These people were living under the weight of the first edict. Haman was dead, but they still had to defend themselves. Um, this is uh, something that you know, if you think about the world that we live in today and you think about this story and you say, well, is this just a story? No, it's not just a story. Uh, it's historical and it's been repeated many times. We've had a holocaust uh, within the last century directed at the Jewish people, but not just the Jewish people. Many others died. I think 20 million people died in the holocaust. Six million of them were Jewish people. I've been to Israel twice, and both times we've gone to the Holocaust Museum, and uh, it is one of the most staggering uh, places that I've ever been to. In fact, when you go through the Holocaust Museum, Museum and you see the artifacts and the shoes of the little kids that perished and the pictures and the brutality, you're, you're numb. 
And people have, you know, there's been ethnic cleansing and uh, so-called in Rwanda and the Balkans and other places like that. And man just has it in his heart somehow to carry hate out to such incredible, sad places. But God is in the reversal of fortune business, and reversals are the stuff of great stories. Some of you can think of maybe your favorite stories or your favorite movie, and uh, those are stories of reversals when all odds seem to be stacked against the hero or the heroine, and all of a sudden something happens. Uh, Another force out of nowhere shows up. Another army comes to help them. And you think, man, it's all, it's all over. The Lord of the Rings stories are great for this. Those armies are so intimidating. How can anybody win? How could anybody survive times like these? And then, you know, it just seems like out of the jaws of defeat, victory comes. It's the stuff of great stories. But the evil day has come. And we have to do everything to stand in that evil day. So notice, this is the... The opening verse says, their enemies, it's the enemies of the Jews or God's people, wanted mastery over them, but God turned it around, and God is, his hand is in this book, though he's not mentioned, and he turned it around, and they gained mastery over their enemies. I want to give you an application as a believer. Uh, Cain was told in Genesis 4-7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must what? You must master it. You must master it. Sin is crouching at the door. Now, how many of you have those little peepholes in your door? And, and now they've advanced them to where now you have that ring thing and you can see if some you know, hooded figure comes up to your door and wants to steal your stuff and you go, go hey, what are you doing there? Oh, I'm not doing anything. Right? And they probably, you know, try to duck. Well, sin is pictured as ducking at your door. It doesn't want you to see it through the people. Right? And, it, and it's looking, since sin is crouching at your door, what's sin looking for? You to open your door. If you don't open the door, sin won't come in. But if you open the door, if you give sin a crack, it will force its way in. And ironically, do you know that the sin that was crouching at the door was Cain's own anger. It wasn't some monster. It was the monster within. It was his flesh. It was his jealousy of his brother. You see, the sin that we have to keep out is often the sin from within. And the way we keep it out is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? The way we keep it out is dying, crucifying the flesh and putting on the things of God. You see, sin and Satan wants to gain mastery over you. You must battle. You must do everything to stand in that evil day. There's a crouching beast at the door, but if we resist him firm in our faith, the enemy will flee from you. That's a promise that you have. James 4, I think it's verse 7. If you resist him, firm in your faith, he will flee from you. But the enemy, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You must gain mastery over that by giving it to your own master, Jesus. Well, the Jews assembled, verse 2, in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. No one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Now, see the word assembled there? It's kahal in Hebrew, and it means to gather. It has the idea of gathering for worship or even war, but it has the idea of gathering in a united front. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king, and they wanted to lay hands on those who wanted to lay hands on them. They had been given the right to defend themselves. And so, notice, they assembled. They were a united front, and no one could stand before them. Now, I'm going to submit to you that the fact that no one could stand before them was not that they were so impressive, or the way they lined up in their ranks, or the weapons that they had. 
The reason that no one could stand before them was God's hand was upon them. God's favor, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I want to give you another application. In your battle with uh, Satan and sin and all that this world has, it is better to be united with other believers than not. When you assemble together with other believers, you find strength in numbers. If you are not going to church, if you're being a solo Christian, trying to be a solo Christian, if you're not in fellowship, if you don't have relationships where there's some depth, some study of the word of God, some challenging of one another to go deeper, some level of accountability, somebody who actually knows you and knows a little bit about your life, well, you're not going to make it. You're going to be fighting all alone. And it's, it's good to have brothers and sisters to fight side by side with. And so they assembled together, God's people. You know, God's people, we have to say, are largely divided tonight. Churches are often competing with one another or, you know, doing silly things to compromise to the culture. Notice, they, yes, they gathered together, but there was a bigger force, and this is the unseen God in the book of Esther. His name never mentioned once, but no one could stand before the Jews, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. What does that mean? How does dread fall on people? And where does it come from? Why is it that the Jewish people at this moment in history had everybody freaked out? Had everybody fearful? What is going on with these people? The dread of them had fallen on the people. If you do a little study, you will find in the book of Joshua that no one could stand before Israel, before Joshua and Israel, Joshua 21, 44 and 23, 9. The dread of God's people is mentioned several times in the Old Testament in Exodus 1, 12, 15, 6 and 22, 3. In Deuteronomy 2.25, Moses, recounting what God did for the people of Israel, said, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens, who when they hear the report of you shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Write down Deuteronomy 11.25, There shall be no man be able to stand before you. The Lord your God shall lay the dread of you and the fear of you on all the land on which you set foot, as he has spoken to you. God did, I believe, God did something supernatural to allow the fear of the Jews, the dread of the Jews, to fall on the people of Persia. Now, some of those people may have heard the stories of the Jewish God, right? Uh, maybe they heard about how he parted the Red Sea or how he did this or that or won victories for Israel with just the worship leaders in the front and nobody even really fighting and confusing foreign armies you know, when they were largely outnumbered and so forth. But I think you have to see, brothers and sisters, that God's hand is on his people. And when God's hand is on you, he will give you favor. He will give you blessing. In fact, you may just freak some people out. Are there some people that you freak out? You're just a little too shiny for them. You come into the room with this whole Jesus thing and they're like, man, no, I don't, no. They need extra sunglasses. They just don't know what to do with you. There's some people that don't even want to touch the Bible. They think something may happen to them. No, 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 I don't, no, I don't want, I don't want to get it away from me. You can mess with people that way. <laughs> get it away. I had a friend some years ago and I had been witnessing to him and I wasn't always the great wit greatest witness, I have to confess. And one time he came into church finally and the communion elements were passing by and he was not a Christian. And there was like a fear and a dread that fell on him and he just let the communion plate pass him by, which he should have because he was a non-Christian, but you could see like a fear in his eyes over what I would say are the holy things of God. Maybe this resonates with some of you, that there's, you've just experienced this where some people, they just don't know quite what to do with you. 
Because the Spirit of the living God is in you. Well, even all the princes of the provinces, three, the satraps, the governors, those who were doing the king's business, all the bigwigs of Persia, assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. I believe that not only can God do this for a country, but he can do this for an individual. He can have his hand so on your life. I have gone into some places, brothers and sisters, by myself as a pastor, where I was like, I am going into the lion's den. That's how it felt. And there, are, there were times when, you know, boldness wasn't the first thing that came to mind. I didn't feel as bold as a lion, and I had to just cry out to God. Many memorial services I was called off to do, and, you know, there I am in a cemetery. I don't, I don't know anybody there, and I've been called to preach the gospel. And you're like, oh, Lord, are you sure you got the right guy? <laughs> Could I just mix in with the crowd and say, yeah, I don't think the preacher showed up today. I don't know, I don't know where he is, right? But then the Lord says, no, no, I've called you. And I've already prepared this moment in time. And I've already prepared these people's hearts. And I've called you. So preach my word. Be instant, in season and out of season. Nobody could, people were freaked out by Mordecai, the Jewish people, all of it. What a change has happened in Mordecai's life. We're first introduced to, uh, to him in chapter 2, and he's introduced as a man who ended up in Persia because of the captivity of his, you know, his ancestors. He's, he's a captive in a foreign land. He's, he sits at the king's gate, and now he's the number two leader in the Persian Empire. That is only God. Only God can do that. And thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword. Killing and destroying, they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now the day has come, and what's implicit in verse 5 is that the Jews had assembled, they prepared themselves to defend themselves, their enemies came, and they took up the sword. And notice, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now that phrase... They did what they pleased, I think is kind of like what we would say, they had their way with them. Or we would say, for those of you who are sports fans, if a team has their way with another team, if they're just toying with an opponent, if they could do anything against this other team, if, if they could run any play in basketball, score at will, that's what the language seems to be. It seems to be that any of their enemies that came at them the Jews just had the power and the favor of God, and, and sadly, people died, but it's what happens in war. It's those who hated them. End of verse 5. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now, think for a moment. Who in Persia would still want to kill the Jews after knowing that Mordecai was number two, knowing what had happened to Haman, knowing that a counter-edict had been signed by the signet ring of the king. Why? Who's left to want to do something against the Jewish people? This tells you how deep the hate ran. How deep the hatred for the Jews was. It's been implied in earlier studies, but now we can see it. There were people who were just waiting for the day that they could have some decree to take out their hatred against the Jews. What is going on there? Why do people today hate the Jewish people? Why is there so much anti-Semitism? Why in our own land people are still making comments in this direction? People in places of power as well. It's a bit frightening. Well, the Jews, in a defensive posture, and that's the way we have to see it, they took up the sword, and they were dominant. In Susa, the capital, six, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, just to show you how widespread. This is just the capital city. 
the battle went. By the way, there's never a mention anywhere in the text that Israel suffered any casualties. I don't know for sure, but there's no mention. They killed 500 men, and here's a list of names that Pastor Michael will do his best with. And Parshantatha, dolphin, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I was going to make a dolphin noise here, but I'm not going to do it. Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vaiz Zatha. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, they killed 500 men, notice, in the capital city, and then these are the ten names of the sons of Haman. All of his sons also were killed. The sons that, remember, he was boasting about a few chapters ago, he had to remind his wife how many sons they had. <laughs> Yeah, and I got this going on, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm high up in the government, and Esther only invites me and the king to dinner, and I got this, and I got that. But that Jew, Mordecai, won't bow before me. None of it means anything without that. Well, now his ten sons pay the price, and they go down, and they are killed. Why are these people fighting against Israel? Why did they continue? I think that there are spiritual origins that we need to see behind the whole scene. The dread of the Jews and Mordecai was from God. The hatred of the Jews was ultimately from Satan. And remember, I reminded you throughout history, from Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, to the Medo-Persian Empire, to segments of the Grecian Empire, to Rome, going back up now past the time of Jesus into history, even from segments of the church, there has been a hatred toward the Jewish people. And now, even in our own day, more and more comments coming in that direction. What is at the core of this? Well, the names of Haman's sons, says one writer, reinforce the author's message that this is a holy war. They are special uh, interest because they may be what's called Deva names of ancient Persia. Let me explain. Deva or Daiva names were once used of the gods in early Iranian and Hindu writings, but later became associated with demonic powers in Eastern religions. If the names of Haman's sons do reflect this origin, the original readers would have probably recognized them as such. The author lists the names of Haman's sons possibly uh, to the allegiance of Haman and his family to the demonic powers of darkness and evil, and therefore they are properly casualties of holy war. According to Yamauchi, uh, one who wrote on Persia and the Bible, some of the names have been found among some of the extant texts discovered at a place called Persepolis, which is in this area. Here's the interesting reason why they may have been listed. Because in some way, his son's names are associated with demonic powers or false gods. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that there's a battle behind the battle? There's a spiritual war behind the war. There are things that fuel hatred of God and anti-Semitism and hatred of the church and the Bible that are not just human in origin. In fact, Paul says we don't even wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Do you know that I don't think that you can even explain world history without an understanding of what the Bible says is the battle behind the battle? If I were to set aside my Bible for the next half an hour and just tell you about the world history that unfolds from Egypt to Assyria to Babylon to Medo-Persia and so forth, you would see what happens in world history and how the Bible is just really confirmed in it. And so the ten sons of Haman were killed. 
But notice in verse 10, the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder or the spoil, even though the edict from Haman said that, or from Mordecai, I'm sorry, said that they could. They did not lay their hands on the spoil. That's going to be mentioned three times. They did not take the plunder. Why? Why didn't they take the spoil? Now, let me take you back for a second. Do you remember I told you that in the book of Exodus, we were told that God would have war with Amalek forever because the Amalekites attacked Israel from the rear and didn't give them rest. And so God said, I'm going to have war with Amalek forever. In 1 Samuel 15, fast forward in your mind through your Bible, kind of walk down the highway, Saul becomes the first king of Israel. And God tells Saul, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. I want you to utterly destroy them. Everything. Don't keep one thing. Well, in 1 Samuel 15, what happens is that he takes the king Agag, and remember, we have Haman, who's an Agagite, so he comes down from this line throughout history. He keeps the king, captures the king, and then the people, he blames the people for it, take the spoil. Samuel arrives and says, well, did you do what God called you to do? Paraphrase. Saul says, well, yeah, kind of. And Samuel says, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep then? And why do I hear, well, well, we took the stuff. It's true. We took the stuff, but we're, we're going to offer it to God as an offering. And Saul makes excuses. And Samuel says to Saul, look, obedience is better than sacrifice. For rebellion is as divination before the Lord. And because you have disobeyed the Lord, the Lord is taking the kingdom or the kingship away from you. And that very day, remember Saul reached out and he grabbed the edge of Samuel's garment and he tore it. And Samuel said, the kingdom is torn from you. And Saul was trying to repent and fall all over himself, but it was too late. Now we ask, why did God say, deal with everything, wipe everything out? Because the Amalekites had war with God from the book of Exodus. Fast forward to Saul's time. Saul was supposed to finish the job, but he didn't finish the job. He took the plunder when he shouldn't have taken the plunder because Saul was acting as one who would execute divine wrath. Please hear me. What God often does in nations and sometimes in individual lives is a nation can become a vehicle by which God executes his wrath. He did it to his own people. He used Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a foreign pagan king, to discipline his own people. See, God will use the natural things on the chessboard, if you will, to move his will. He wanted Saul to execute his will against Amalek. Saul refused, and we fast forward to the time of Esther later, and what's happened now? A man from that lineage of that king has risen up against Israel, and he wants to annihilate them all. That's what God wanted avoided. So now, the people of Israel in Persia finished the job that Saul failed to complete. And by not taking the plunder or the spoil, even though the, the command said they could, they are, in essence, reversing the failure of Saul. Everybody with me? That's how this, this weaves together throughout your Bible. They have every right to take it, but they don't take it because they see themselves as simply executing God's wrath against God's enemies. And at the center of this is the Agagite enemy or the Amalekites represented by Haman's family and his 10 sons. And this is brutal, but this is what happens. In ancient warfare, if you as a leader were captured and killed, they would kill your family as well. You say, why, man, that's brutal. Because they didn't want one of your ancestors to rise up and try to get revenge. They didn't want a coup to come from your own family, so they would destroy everybody so that there would be no possibility of that happening. It's brutal, but it's the way they did things. And so they won't take the plunder. Can you think of some people in the uh, Old Testament who took the spoil when they weren't supposed to and got themselves in deep trouble? Uh, remember Achan in the uh, book of Joshua? 
The people of Israel go and they devastate Jericho and God's with them. And God says, everything's under the ban. You are simply my instrument to bring divine wrath to the Canaanite peoples who sacrifice their children on the altars, who burn incense to foreign gods, who are evil. You're going to be my tool. It's not that you're so great, Israel, but you're going to be my divine tool. So Israel goes in there, but Achan sees a nice robe and some silver and gold. There's songs about it, silver and gold. It's just shiny and attractive, and there was a cool robe, and it fit him. It was the right size. And so he went, it won't be a problem. I'll take these couple of things. And he took them, and he took the gold, and then the children of Israel went to Ai, and they should have wiped him out, and Ai beat him up and devastated him. And Joshua goes to the Lord and goes, Lord, what happened? Why did we lose? And God says, "Uh, come into my office. There's sin in the camp. What do you mean, Lord? Well, people took stuff for themselves, And they weren't supposed to personally profit from this because you're just my instrument of divine wrath. Some people have taken some stuff and Achan was found out. And let me just say, it did not end well for Achan or his family. You remember Gehazi? Uh, What is it, Naaman, the Syrian leader, goes to the prophet and the prophet tells him, you know, go ahead and dip in the Jordan River and... uh, he finally obeys, and then Gehazi, you know, the, the Syrian leader wants to offer money to the prophet for the healing, and he says, no, I don't want your money. Gehazi, the assistant of the prophet, rides back and goes, hey, uh, you still got that money? <laughs> because uh, the prophet changed his mind. He wants it now. He's a little short on his bills, you know, and things are a little tight, you know, prophet, you know, this is not always the best prophet. Anyway, and so can I have some of that stuff, and I'll bring it back to him. And he takes it, and he ends up in trouble. And the prophet says, wasn't my spirit with you when you were going there? What were you thinking? You remember when Abram wins the battle to rescue Lot, and the king of Sodom comes up to Abram and offers him some stuff. And Abram says to the king of Sodom, he says, I will not take anything from your hand lest the wicked city of Sodom be the source of my prosperity, paraphrase. Uh, One writer says, this example of Abram refusing to take booty from the king of Sodom sets an example or a precedent for, for God's people. I don't want dirty money or anything or you to be able to say, you are the one that enriched me. No. Well, I think there's a reversal going on in that Israel could have taken it, but did not. And on that day, the number of those who were killed in Susa, the capital, was reported to the king. So we have the number in the previous verse, uh, 500, uh, actually several verses ago in verse 6. And now the report comes to the king of all those who were killed. And the king said to Queen Esther, verse 12, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in Susa, the capital. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? If that's what they did in the capital, what else? Now he says, now what's your petition? It shall even be granted you. What is your further request? It shall be done. Now it doesn't say that she asked him for anything. Was it her body language? I don't know. Why does the king at this point ask her for what she wants? Has he fallen under the dread of the Jews as well? Is he going, well, maybe I should give her whatever she wants because these people are pretty powerful. I don't know. But he asked her, what more do you want? He can see that obviously Israel is effectively devastating the enemy. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, 13, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today. Remember, the edict was only for one day. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. And all God's people said of Esther, What's up, girl? Really? What's happened to sweet little Esther? Depicted in all the caricatures and the Sunday school books and the movies as this little, you know, slip of a girl who, by God's grace, ended up in the Persian leadership. 
Now she's asking for people to be impaled on poles and stuff like that? Why? Well, one writer says, literally, this is overkill. That was an attempt at a joke, but uh, anyway. <laughs> overkill, get it. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> she asked for an extra day of fighting, but then she asked for the ten sons of Haman, maybe, get this, to be hung on the same pole that he made for Mordecai. Do you know when they would hang people on a tree, and this, is, this comes out in Scripture, it would depict them as being under the curse of God. Uh, do you remember when Saul and Jonathan are killed? The Philistines in Beit Shan, I think it's 1 Samuel 31, put them up on a wall in one of their cities. You know why they did that? Because they wanted to announce that they had victory over the Israelites. And even, they would say, even by extension, over their God. And so why does Esther want them up there? I think to make a statement that they're under the curse of God, which is fitting for the scene that we've painted with a, a long-standing holy war, if you will. There's a tradition, and if it's correct, it's this incident where the people of the land, nicknamed uh, Hadassah, who's Esther's real name in Hebrew, Esther, alluding to Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess of love and war. We don't know if that's certain, but... That's what one tradition says. And so she asked for the extra day, and she also asked that the sons be displayed, the sons of Haman. Now, when the ten sons of Haman were killed, what happened to the threat, the ancient threat against Israel? It was dealt with. The enemy was dealt with. And putting them on display, and of course they had already been killed, would be a way of saying, if you try to mess in this area again, it's not going to go well for you. When the Roman uh, domination of the world occurred, the reason that they crucified people on public roads was to say, if you turn against the Roman Empire, this is what will happen to you. And men would, would be crucified on crosses. Sometimes they would be on the crosses for a week, dying there. And there is evidence that when Jesus was crucified, and I've mentioned this to many of you in the past, it wasn't up on a hill. That he literally would have been on a street down below Calvary or Golgotha in front of a, a mountainside that has what looks like a skull, as though death were mocking him. And if you walked by that street, the cross would be about the level of this pulpit as you walk by doing your shopping. There would be people on crosses that close to you. You could just look up and see them dying. And the written charge would be over their head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. That was the charge written against him. But if you had done something else and you were crucified, the two thieves on his right and his left had the charge written over them as well. This is what Rome did. A public display. And the Jewish leadership said, See, he can't be the Messiah. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. But Jesus couldn't come down from the cross because he was under the curse of God for you, brothers and sisters. He was dying there, taking the wrath of Almighty God, fighting the ultimate holy war in our stead. And there as he sheds his blood and dies, he's being put on public display to show you God's love, but God's justice. And so the king commanded that it should be done so, and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. It sounds harsh, but this is the ancient world. And the extra day she asked for, we're going to see there was a good reason. The Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 14th day of the month, that's the next day, uh, uh, Adar, and killed 300 men. There were still people who wanted their demise in Susa, that's the capital, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. We're reminded once again. Now we have 800 people who were killed in Susa to show you how many enemies there were. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, I think 127, assembled. 
to defend their lives. Notice they were in a defensive posture. If you're struggling with this, they were in a defensive posture. It was either kill or be killed. And rid themselves of their enemies, and they killed, notice, 75,000 of those who hated them. That's how big this was. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So if you take the combination of the 75,000 and the 800 and Haman's sons, you have your total there. That's how many people died in this battle. Not one record of any Jewish person dying. I don't know if some people, if there were casualties or not, but it does not say. Now this was done as we wind down, on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they, that is those in the provinces outside the capital, rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa, that's the capital, assembled on the 13th day, the 13th and the 14th of the same month, that's in light of what Esther asked for the extra day, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Final verse, therefore... The Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month of Adar a holiday. That's because they only fought one day for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. The Jews in the capital make it the next day because they had to fight for two days. And their day of feasting and rejoicing came after that, as you see in verse 17. This is setting the table for the Feast of Purim, or Purim, or maybe Purim, and it is the celebration of how God delivered the Jewish people from Haman's wicked plot. If you Google it, I would encourage you to do so, you'll see it is almost like Mardi Gras in Israel. <laughs> people are dressed up in clown outfits, kids are dressed up, I will say it's a bit of a party scene, but they, they make these cookies, and it's supposed to re represent either Haman's ear or pocket, and they celebrate deliverance. You know that just about every major holiday in Israel is a celebration of them being saved from a people group who wanted to kill them. Think of Passover. <laughs> Passover is celebration of deliverance from Egypt, right? And you can go down the list of uh, things that Israel celebrates and it's uh, even if you think of, um, what's the uh, holiday in December? Hanukkah. Uh, deliverance from the, uh, the Grecian enemies. And so they send gifts to one another, feasting, uh, joyous food portions to one another. So this, this is very biblical. For those of you who send cookies to people, you are biblical, okay? And I'm just making a personal plea. Oatmeal raisin. All right? No, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm, I'm trying to watch my weight. No, never mind. <laughs> Sending gifts to one another to celebrate God's deliverance. Sound familiar? We have many holidays like that, but we have one called Christmas. And at Christmas, we send gifts to one another, and we bake cookies for other people. How many people? You bake cookies for people, and you drop the cookies by the church office. That's why I gained 10 pounds in December. <laughs> It would be wrong not to eat the gifts that people have given in the name of the Lord. Now I'm repenting of that. When you bring a meal to somebody, when you send a gift, when you sit down and have a meal or a fellowship with other believers, do you know that every time we gather, it's really a celebration? What are we celebrating? that our ultimate enemy has been defeated. It's not just happened on paper. He came. He conquered. He made an open spectacle of principalities and powers. We are free. We're just headed for heaven. Yeah, we got some bumps in the road, and, I'm, and Israel still did too. But we know where we're going. The victory has been won. The battle has been won. God's people, it's okay to celebrate. Celebrate good times. Come on. All right, final psalm, says the preacher, and we're done. Psalm 124. Psalm 124. This is beautiful, and I want to leave you with this as an encouragement. If you're in Christ, the victory has been won. You may feel beat up. You may feel a little bit down, or things may be heavy, but 
you're on the winning team. And here's Psalm 124. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, Psalm 124, 1, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is the name of the Lord, who made the heavens and the earth. And Father, I thank you that Revelation 21 says that you make new heavens and a new earth. I thank you that it says that you will wipe away tears from every eye. That you will reverse the curse that is on the planet and on the people of the planet and on everything. And you will reverse the curse and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more pain, no more tears. The former things would have passed away. And you say, behold, I am making all things new. Right, for these words are faithful and true. Thank you that you have staked your promises. You said that you have staked them on your very name, and we know that they are good and they're true and they will come to pass. And so may that hope carry us forward in times when our life can be dark and heavy, Lord. May you lift burdens from shoulders right now. May you bring light where there may be some darkness. May you bring healing where there's a need for healing. Thank you that you are so faithful. May you bring emotional healing. May you strengthen those who need some spiritual refreshment tonight. Just pour out your spirit on your people, Lord. If you've not met Christ, now is a good time to cry out to him and just say, I repent of my sin and I believe in you, Jesus. You're the powerful, highest king. I trust in you. Cry out to him. If you have questions, we, we would like to know, but just place your trust in him. And Father, just as we wrap up tonight, we are so grateful for this book, and we pray that you give us joy and rejoicing in our hearts for all that you have won on our behalf. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.